probably one term more so than employer brand that is used or treated or thought of like magic fairy pixie dust one sprinkles upon a situation to make it all better everybody you know I, and i'm I'm probably guilty of sounding like I think employer brand does that. It does not in no way, shape, or form do I actually think that. I know it's a very big, complicated, messy, complex world. Employer brand is a tool, not always the right tool for the job. But that term that is used more so than employer brand in that same way is candidate experience. And I have a very, I don't know, a difficult relationship with the concept of a candidate experience. I think it's an overused term, which of course may be jealousy that people aren't talking about employer brand enough. I don't know. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe deep down, I just feel bad that why aren't we getting the spotlight? And maybe that's what that is, but maybe not. I don't think it is, but I don't, but here we go. We're going to figure it out. We're going to talk today about candid experience and a little bit more about what it's, why employer branding matters so much. That's what we're going to talk about today. We'll be right back. Hey everybody, James Ellis here. Welcome back to the Talent Cast. As you know, it's season two, which means it's a retelling, a reinvention of Talent Chooses You, the book that I wrote a couple years ago that we're bringing back as an audiobook. But it's a podcast. It's an audiobook. It's a podcast. It's a candy. It's a gum. Science is magic. You can do anything. Anyway, this whole entire season is brought to you by RecruitmentMarketing.com, the community for recruitment marketing professionals. Go check them out. That's RecruitmentMarketing.com. They sponsored the whole season. So we thank them for kind of putting my button gear and getting me to commit to the entire project. It was a great idea. I'm glad we could make this happen. So I hopefully this is useful to you. So let's talk about candidate experience. Let's start with this idea. You have a dream job. I bet you do. I mean, everybody does. I have a dream job. Not that I'm going to tell you what it is, but everybody has a dream job. Or I mean, or at the very least, they have a dream company that they love to work for. And it's a, maybe it's a company you've thought about, you've read about, you've researched, you've networked towards, you know, kind of inching your way to getting closer to people who know people who know people in the job, right? You're building those connections. Maybe you have a job alert of it. Maybe you're following them on social media, right? Maybe all during that time, intentionally or not, we've started to build a picture about what that company is. And when I say that, I mean what the company offers us. All we're doing is waiting for all the stars to align, for that perfect job to pop up, for us to apply, to take that job, and to walk magically, happily ever after into the sunset, right? So let's assume stars align. The perfect job appears. The job that you would be perfect for. Your unique skills, experience, motivations, aptitude, whatever. Traits, I don't call it what you want. You are perfect for this. Oh, they don't even know how much this you are perfect for this job. It's as if they asked you to write the job posting and you did, and they said, great, perfect, and they posted it, now it's yours. All you gotta do is go through the process of grasping it. So what happens if, during the application process for that dream job, you had to retype your resume to the ATS? Right? It's a bit of a, a meme in recruiting world that, oh man, only idiots fill out the resume after they upload the resume. What kind of company would force me to do that? Oh, this company sucks. Would that stop you from applying? I mean, this is your dream job, remember? What if, I don't know, the, the career site was a little outdated? What if the recruiter was five minutes late to the phone screen? What if the office tour before the interview kind of just walked you from the lobby to the, door, the, the the conference room and you didn't really see much. 
or they didn't give you some swag on the way out the door, or they took an extra day or two to get back to you with a decision. What if the offer paperwork had something wrong and had to get redone and delayed the process a couple of days? Would any of that stop you from actually being, not just accepting the job, but being thrilled to take that job, right? Of course not, no freaking way. But we belabor the concept of canned experience as if it makes someone who's deeply interested, who's researched the brand, who understands the brand promise and the value proposition, who understands how and can see themselves as a great fit for the company, who could envision long-term success in the company. They can see themselves staying for five or 10 years, adding value every step of the way, growing with the company as the company grows. Do you think that person's gonna balk at a wonky candidate process? At an interview where you weren't offered water? or I don't know, an interview room wasn't all that sleek and shiny? If you survey candidates, and by the way, I've been part of those surveys, if you survey them and ask them what they want in an interview experience, the answer is always, always, clearly, that they demand a great candidate experience. I know this because I read the magazines too. I read the articles too. That's all they want. They demand a great candidate experience. What do they know? What they really want is to have an easy process. And by that, they want to show up, be seen as the perfect candidate right off the bat. They go through an interview or two just to validate, to meet their boss, to learn about the company. And two days later, the offer paperwork is at their desk. That's what they want. But you and I know how insane that is. How many people are involved in this process? The comp and Ben, the HR business partners, the hiring managers, the interview loop. Is it a diverse interview pool? Is it, did you check the boxes? Do you do all the things? Did you ask for internal candidates? There's so many steps involved in this process. There's no way it can be that easy for a candidate. But since we can't offer that to a candidate, we offer plan B. Because when we in talent acquisition hear that candidates want a great candidate experience, we assume they need to be provided some sort of white glove service, right? Like the candidate was getting their Bentley tuned up or checking into the suite at the plaza. That's not how that works. White glove service is about walking into a place, being handed a fresh newspaper and a pair of white gloves so you don't smudge or dirty your hands with the newsprint. That's white glove. That means picking the candidate up, making sure they have something to eat, giving them space to kind of go to the bathroom, look around, ask questions, let them give them free reign. White glove service in reality is a far cry from what we think of as white glove service, which usually means there's a box of snacks and a bottle of water in the interview room. So the kind of picture that we talk about when we think about candidate experience is really shallow. It shows how low the bar is. I mean, honestly, for my money, the bar is so low, it's underground. You can't even trip over it. It's underground. There's so many more things candidate wants, but simply don't realize that they could have it. They just know what it could be. And all they do is, you know, if nothing else, can you just, this thing is going to be painful as a a colonoscopy. Can we at least just make it get, get over faster? The most important thing that a candidate really wants is a feeling of connection to feeling like they understand what the company's all about, why they might want to join it. It's understanding the values and understanding what they those values mean beyond what the posters say, right? It means getting at the heart of things. When we think about candidate experience, it's like asking people what they want from a prospective partner and they 
get answers like, I don't know, maybe they shouldn't snore so loud. or Maybe they should be a little more tidy. No, that's not what you fall in love with. When you fall in love with someone or you fall in love with a company, you understand what they're driven by. You, their motivations and your motivations align. You know how you can help them and how they can help you. Same is true in a relationship as it is in a company and employer. You want to have an impact in a manner that aligns with your motivations because they're the company's motivations. In the face of virtually no transparency, a very little offering of the real why. I mean, beyond the BS that we throw out there on the website that's two sentences and calling it done. Beyond the mission that was written by committee or a vision statement that may have not been revisited in 10 years that means nothing. If that's what you're faced with, okay, yeah. Focusing on candidate experience can absolutely yield results. Making, putting a gloss of polish on a piece of junk makes it more attractive. Simple as that. I buy that. Totally buy that. But in the face of love and a future vision of professional satisfaction, that connected motivation, that feeling of belonging and connectedness, candidate experience doesn't really matter. It's not that important. An amazing restaurant doesn't need white tablecloths to deliver an epic and memorable meal. Some of my favorite meals are in barbecue shacks, right? The, the, the tablecloth didn't matter. The white glove service wasn't necessary. The meal itself was amazing. An amazing car doesn't have to come in your favorite shade of red to make you feel confident. A new house might be missing that two-sink bathroom, but that doesn't make you feel any less pride in owning that home. These are details. These are facts. They don't reinforce the story you tell to yourself. Candid experience is what you invest in when you're too scared to talk about what you really care about, what the company is really about what the day-to-day -day life is really all about. It's creating the best possible window display without any products in it. But now you know better, right? You know the candidate experience is helpful, but nowhere near as powerful as a strong employer brand. But if you can't invest in employer brand, and I will freely, though a little uh, painfully, admit that there are plenty of companies who refuse to invest in a strong employer brand, where Okay, plan B, better polish. You can't always have the best wood to build your, your furniture. Well, at least you can stick a whole bunch of memory foam on it and make it look pretty. It won't last forever, but for the now, it's enough. It gets you through the day. So when we're talking about, as we shift gears here a little bit, why employer branding? I wanted to provide two, um, let's call them counterfactuals. Why employer branding matters by kind of flipping it around. And I start with this one, counterfactual one. What would a world without employer branding look like? So if you've gotten this far in this book and you still aren't convinced that employer brand matters, let's go ahead and flip things around and provide a counterfactual argument. If employer branding wasn't useful and wasn't effective, no one would use it. So what would it be like if no one invested or developed their own employer brand? Okay, well, okay, well let's, let's take that out. Let's, let's kind of water that argument out. First, how would candidates choose between potential opportunities? Based on the thin veneer of self-serving copy the marketing team built? Um, no, it's like saying I'm choosing laundry detergents because I like their slogan better. Based on the horribly written and non-descriptive language in a job posting or description? No, that's like choosing a car based on what the, the manual looks like. It doesn't make any sense, right? You're trying to get people to change their life based on copy that accompanies, I don't know, 
furniture polish. It's just that simple. We talk about Coke and Pepsi like they're radically different things, but they're not, right? That's, okay, you, you're a Pepsi person that go to a restaurant and they say, we only have Coke. It's not like you're leaving. You just, okay, fine. It's not exactly what I wanted, but it's fine. But this isn't what drink you'll have at a barbecue. This is a life-changing decision. Are you going to pretend that working at Google and Uber and the Wisconsin Department of Transportation are the same? By the way, when I read that the first time, I actually said I can I concatenated Google and Uber and I called them Goober. I'm sorry. I just wanted you to know that. I, thought, I found it funny, so now you can too. Please laugh at me. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I mean, at least when you look at furniture deter furniture polishes, they all do the same kind of stuff. They all polish their furniture, but. The job choice between Uber and the Wisconsin Department of Transportation and Google, they're not offering similar salaries. They're not offering similar lifestyles. They're not offering the same levels of satisfaction. I'm not even saying that one is good and one is bad. To someone, the Wisconsin Department of Transportation is their dream job. I'm not kidding. This is a choice within the meaning. This is what we mean when we say helping people make a choice and extending that brand to help them make the choice. So instead of choosing between brands, candidates don't choose. Instead, they sit back and let the recruiters come to them in droves, making pitches and offers. Suddenly, the candidate is in charge. Suddenly, the candidate gets to dictate terms. Recruiters, who are now tired of using the same self-serving, undifferentiated talking points, are reduced to making up their own anything to get the candidate to respond in a wave, in a sea of offers and, hey, guy that found the best opportunity I think you'd love kind of messaging. This means that not only will no one be sure what you're saying, but no one will be sure what the candidates are being told. So those recruiters now who are desperate, who've, who've metrics to say, okay, you have to bring those butts and put them in a seat, whose work is devalued now to the point of being roughly that of a boiler room call center, aren't going to be able to show their value. So their salaries drop because why not just farm that out to another country where the salaries are much, much, much lower? Why not? Why not just ship it all overseas and outsource the whole kit and caboodle? I mean, at least this way, when you do that, the callers will stick to the mandated talking points. I mean, there's that, but companies will have to have twice as many bodies point at the same problem, but still only get half the value. Effective recruitment marketing gets more expensive to compensate. Okay, we don't have any way to differentiate. I guess we have to sell a lot, you know, we have to buy a whole lot of ads. Because as the product gets commoditized, the marketing around it has to get more complicated, more creative, more expensive to stand out. My example, take a look at the Tide commercial from the last couple of Super Bowls. I'm, I wrote this uh, for the 1918, or not 1918, the 2018 Super Bowl, where um, they, they, um, they got a fairly famous actor from Stranger Things who's David Barber, I think his name is. He was in a fake commercial and they made a joke about how it wasn't really that commercial. It was really a Tide ad. It was an ad for Tide, a soap. They get a celebrity spokesperson starring in a really complicated, creative one-minute ad. It wasn't just expensive to ideate. It wasn't just expensive to film. It cost $10 million just to stick on the broadcast. Why? To show that Tide is somehow in any way, shape, or form different from all. They're the same. 
When they're commoditized, you have to manufacture difference. You have to manufacture that. And that's expensive stuff. The result is that game-changing A-level talent never gets to choose between you because they don't understand why they should. Their information ends up coming from formal and informal networks they can't, that you can't even tap into. So you're left to fight over the remainder, the people who weren't good enough to do that. And since to them, all the jobs and all the companies are the same, right? They flip a coin, they choose you, I guess, depending on the coin flip. Your company, rightly or wrongly, is now seen and treated the same as every single other company. It gets down to that core idea. They don't want that job, they want a job. You're not offering a specific experience, you're offering a job experience. And when they all look the same, they don't really choose. I mean, if you think this is crazy, I get that because it sounds ludicrous. It sounds way out there. But I continue to get regular outreach for jobs I can't do in places I don't live. Of course, it's in a contract job, never a full-time job, based on a skill I put on my resume 15 years ago. I'm not kidding. I once did a little Lotus Notes work, but I didn't have a lot of technical experience, so I stuck it on a resume just to kind of show I had some technical skills because that was the kind of job I wanted to show I could do, I could bridge those gaps. And that resume got uploaded to like an Indeed or something. And that gets scanned by every bot in the world, wherever the job board was. I'm not going to be specific to Indeed. I don't know where it is. And they still think somehow that time has stood still and I'm still some sort of Lotus Notes expert. That's the level of recruiting these days. Do, you th do I think that those people spamming me for that job are actually good recruiters? No. Is it more likely that they're in a call center or they're running a little bot that kind of spams the hell out of people? Yeah. And that's what I just described. I bet anyone with a complete LinkedIn profile gets those messages. They get emails, they get phone calls, they get them all the time. These are spammers at best and scammers at worst. And that is the future of recruiting you should be desperate to avoid. Counterfactual number two, numero dos. Would you rather compete against a company that invested in its employer brand or one that didn't? So the second argument is simple. This is the counterfactual, the counter argument. If employer brand wasn't impactful, your company shouldn't have any problem competing, against, competing successfully against a company that has invested in employer brand, right? If it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. You can compete against them whether they invested in it or not. In fact, one might suggest that if employer brand isn't useful, you have an advantage over a company that spends the money on the brand because now you have more resources free to spend on those more effective tool things like job boards. So great, let's go to a job board. Let's take a look. Go search for a job, any job you like. Something, I don't know, a lot of companies need, like an inbound salesperson or a project manager or an executive assistant or a recruiter or a programmer or a graphic designer, whatever. Tell me, regardless of your location, how many jobs pop up and how many of those companies have you ever heard of in your life? Meaning, of the list that's there, which are the good companies to apply for? You don't have infinite time. You can only apply for a few of them. Which ones do you apply for? How do you choose? How many of you would trust your work history, your home address, your cell phone, your references to a company you've never heard of? Who would spend the time applying for a job they've never, for a company they've never heard of? Only people who have no other choice. How about this? Go make a fake LinkedIn profile and put that you're an expert on 
I don't know, a year ago, it was autonomous driving cars uh, or Hadoop architecture. Maybe you talk about crypto and blockchain. How about that? Publish it. Put, you know, put some facts in it to kind of make it feel real, but not, don't go too far. You don't have to. Trust me. Then count to 10. Because I'm pretty sure that's how long it takes before a recruiter will find it, ping you, and give you a very rote outreach message. In fact, there are bots that do exactly that. People program them to say, when a person with certain skills or certain titles show up, send them this message. And then watch, right after that first message, the avalanche of effectively the same message. Flood your inbox. In a week, you'll see dozens, if not hundreds of messages, almost all of which sound the same. Now, in that sea of messaging, if you really want to stick the knife in, go see if you can find a message from one of your recruiters. See if you can pick that message up out of a lineup. See if it's exactly the same because they copied it from somebody else, they copied it from someone else, they copied it from an article they saw six years ago. See if there's any reason why you'd see that and go, oh yeah, that's interesting. You probably wouldn't because that doesn't work. That's not how you compete. That's how you exist. In the face of a tsunami of recruiters vying for your attention, is getting the candidate faster an advantage? Is being able to spam them in a second better? Is having a personalized message going to help you stand out? Is having a, a pretty career site going to move the needle in any way, shape, or form? Or will you only respond to brands you already know and feel something positive about? Mm-hmm. Turns out the fight happens before the posting. So let's say, let's just, okay, let's take it all the way. Let's say you beat the odds and you get someone's attention and you make a pitch. Let's assume for some reason a candidate said, yeah, sure, I'll listen to you. Now, assuming you're not a huge commercial brand, and frankly, even if you are, the next step anybody with talent will have is to go research you. Job sites, review sites, search engines, whatever. What do people say about you? What do your employees say? What does the news say? The recruiter didn't give much to go on except, hey, they're going to use words like great opportunity for someone like you and we have a great culture. We're a great place to work. I mean, as if those things mean anything. But then you come across a company that publishes its code publicly or, or show, showcases its commitment to the community by staging a charity fun run or it sets up an open source training to help boot camp grads make the leap to real coding jobs or takes a fun picture every day at someone's desk. And, and look, they seem to actually be bringing a little bit of personality to this. Huh, that's interesting. Or maybe they publish a new Snapchat filter every Friday so staff can take fun selfies and share with their friends. Or they give the reins of their entire social media platform to a different nurse every single week. Or they point to what people say about them on Glassdoor and Fairy Godboss and, and comparably. Or they talk about how 85% of all their staff have asked a family member or friend to join the company. Or, or, or. These are companies who are opening their kimono about what life is like inside the building, creating meaningful, authentic, compelling content. Meanwhile, you're waiting for help from your somebody on the comms team, hopefully, and hope they don't take three weeks to review your social media calendar and hope that when they do review it, they don't squeeze out all the personality from it. Or maybe you're waiting for your marketing team to actually show up and pretend that they know who you are and jump in, even though they still haven't responded to your request to borrow their video camera to shoot a quick movie about what it's like to work there. Yeah, the things these companies do are silly. 
They're ephemeral. They're goofy. And they only appeal to a very small slice of that potential audience. But those people are building an emotional connection with people inside the company, and you're trying to fight with generic 200-word job postings. Who do you think is going to win? When the fight isn't to water down your brand and make your working experience more palatable and inoffensive to everybody, what's to fall in love with? Try it this way. There's a woman who just made a huge breakthrough in your field, the kind of thing that puts a business three steps ahead of everybody else. That company she works for is going to almost name their sales office after her. Everybody in the industry is talking about her. They're sending her muffin baskets. They've sent her cookies. They're offering to take her on office tours and woo her away. Why on earth would she give all that up to work for you? What is it about your stock art career site and beige personality and social media that offers her anything to engage with? There you stand with a a career site full of stock photos and a beige personality social media platform. What exactly are you offering? The chance to be bored? Do you think that's what she wants? Now take that and multiply by 100 or however many recs you have open right now because that's how far behind you are when you don't invest in an employer brand. Now take that idea and multiply it by 100 or, or however many recs you have open right now because that's how far behind you are when you don't invest in employer brand. Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission, that through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. So when I sold Employer Brand, and I guess in a way I still do, even if it's in-house, the value, the thing that makes people kind of go, yep, 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 I want that is the idea that you're going to be able to help a company, quote unquote, punch above its weight. How does a scrawny 16-year-old beat up a Mike Tyson? How do you use employer brand as a way to compete against bigger and even sexier companies? That's what this is all about. Counterfactual is great, but let's get into why. Everyone wants to work for Google, right? Isn't that what the surveys say? They've been seen as the, the number one or most desirable or most attractive employer in the U.S. and most of the world for like a decade? I mean, when it comes to recruitment and talent perception, Google is the 800-pound gorilla. Or so you might think. Why does everyone work, want to work for Google? Well, I think it's because they've heard all these amazing stories about free lunches and great snacks and coffee bars every 20 paces. And each coffee bar has 10 different coffee offerings and six kinds of milk. And they've heard that San Francisco employees get a shuttle bus that takes them to work that has Wi-Fi and that there are beanbag chairs and nap rooms and someone gives you a massage now and then when things get a little tense, right? 
On top of that, we all use Google. It's a search engine. It's a direction tool. It's my email. It's my news aggregator. Well, it used to be my news aggregator. Um, whatever. Uh, it's a directory. It's a calendar. It's a word processor. There are millions and millions and millions of people who use Google phones and routers and virtual assistants and have Google as their mobile phone carrier. People love the products and love the idea of working in a place with so many perks. Yeah, it has a great Glassdoor rating. But there are plenty of negative reviews. They've had plenty of mass walkouts before. They get in trouble with China. Those are issues. Um, it's probably a really deeply satisfying place to work for some people. And that's true of every company. There's good stuff in every job and there's bad stuff in every job. You just got to pick your poison. There's a lid for every pot, but even then it's never perfect. And off the top of my head, I can think of plenty of people who would get a job at Google who wouldn't actually be happy there. People who have a deep entrepreneurial spirit, people who want to play by their own rules and run in the direction of their choosing, people who are willing to bear risks in the process of making a bet and gambling and potentially losing. How about someone who needs to feel like they're connected to a bigger mission than themselves? I mean, Google does a lot of cool stuff around organizing information in the world, and it might be said that they're knock-on effects that are globally positive, but their mission isn't saving the world. It's not saving the whales. It's not fixing global warming. What about someone who needs to feel the spotlight, like they're the important person doing great work, that they're unusual, that, that they have some sort of special experience? What about someone who needs to feel that spotlight, to feel like they're important and unique doing great work? Are they going to get that in a company as big as Google? I mean, unless you're the CEO and everybody knows your name, name another person to Google. It's not like they give a lot of spotlight out to anybody else. I mean, except when they're firing them, then that gets complicated. But And that doesn't count the people who prefer to work at different paces or like to take more or less risk. People who are already at the top of their game and need to be seen as a top dog. What about people who need a work-life balance? All those great perks we started off with were designed to keep Googlers at their desk for longer hours and do more work. So for every person who'd be happy at Google, and as much as I like to tease them and make fun of them, I can guarantee you there are plenty of people who would find it to be a, the perfect place to work. No question. But for every one of those people, you'll find one, maybe two or three, who would absolutely not be. So when you're saying you're competing against Google or Facebook or Ford or Procter & Gamble or whatever, you're not competing for a talent in the aggregate. You're trying to tell a compelling story for the right person, for an individual, a person. You're not putting a persona in that role. You're putting a person in that role. You want your message to be heard by many, sure, yes, useful, but it needs to spark the imagination or the soul of an individual, a single person who's ready for it, who has what you need and cares about what you care about. They need to know that you have something that makes them specifically happier and more satisfied. So again, not trying to pick on Google. Love Google. They do a lot of great stuff, and there are a lot of people who are happy there because what motivates them internally, it's, it's appreciated and rewarded by the company. They have an alignment of what they want from their job, and Google's offers it, and good for them. It's a perfect fit, Right. The company rewards employees for good work and encourages good work, returning further rewards, et cetera, et cetera. Think of all those companies who are listed as a best place to work, and I feel like I've beaten a dead horse, but I will continue to whip out my bat and smack it around a bit more. But the phrase best place to work is not a complete sentence. It is a phrase. 
best place to work for whom, to whom, in what way, in what how. how. Give me more. Give me the rest of that sentence. That is a nothing statement as it's stated. Anyway, so when you say you're a best place to work, you can assume that everybody be happy at a company like that because every company is different. Every company has different purposes and values and missions. And every person has different purposes and missions and values. If they don't align, it doesn't matter if someone called you a best place to work because you aren't a great place to work for that person. That's why it's so crucial to know what you're all about and communicate it clearly. You are a a dog whistle or bat signal. You send to people who appreciate what you have to offer, what your company rewards and their motivations are, and you can win because other companies don't say those things. If you can't afford, I don't know, a nap room or a free food, don't try to compete on lavish perks. You just can't. You won't, it won't win. Instead, show how they'd be more satisfied working for you. Remember, it's the value proposition. The value proposition is, is, is bigger than the salary. It's bigger than the perks. It's bigger than what the re- review is. It's all of those things, and you have to kind of weigh them in their totality. They might see one of these as obvious companies and assume that it's the best place, but there's just as good a chance that it's not actually the best place to work for them. And that's how you win. That's how you compete, by showing how you are a better fit for them, not for people, for them. Who cares if 99% of the world thinks working there is stupid? Your company is the worst. Who cares if 1% thinks it's the best company they've ever worked for and that 1% has great people in it? Who cares? Who cares what the reviews say? Who cares about the awards? So long as people get what you're about. So long as people understand the, the value proposition you offer because it's what they care about. And all of this leads down to what I think about as the ultimate argument for employer branding. And just full disclosure, for those of you who have kids, here comes the swearing. Investing in your employer branding tells the candidate that you give a crap about some aspect of your staff and about specifically what that aspect is. In a nutshell, your employer brand is what you give a crap about in the hopes that someone says, I give a crap about that too. Let's go do that together. Maybe you give a crap about success, their satisfaction, their happiness, their salary. Maybe you give a crap about the planet. Maybe you give a crap about the compensation. Maybe you give a crap about helping them become the best employees they could ever be. Employer branding is the signal that your company has figured out who they are so they aren't just showing up all willy-nilly saying any old thing to get anybody who walks by to apply. An employer brand says that you have a measure of intentionality. When done right, so much employer brand is just churning up the rah-rah machine and getting the cheerleaders and the pom-poms moving. But good employer brand says, thought about it, considered it, this is what we care about, and if you care about this too, we have it. We're not just saying we have it, we have it, and we probably have the proof on that. Employer brand thought and execution say that when this company brings you on, it's not with a hope and a prayer that you'll add some value and get something out of it, hopefully, maybe, sort of, but with a real expectation that you will be satisfied and they will be satisfied with the work and everybody gets something out of this, that everybody gets what they want. It's the same way that investing in social responsibility projects tells the world that you're successful and you care about something more than the quarterly financial results. Employer branding tells candidates that both parties are looking to create 
mutually beneficial relationships. It's the signal you throw to tell people, this is what I care about. If you care about too, we're going to be best friends. Because those are the most valuable and they last the longest and lead to the business success. Isn't that the kind of person you really want to hire? Or do you just need 100 applicants? All right, everybody. I know it's a bit of a the meaty section. Got a lot of stuff. But that was the end of section four, or section three, rather. We're going to start chapter four, where your employer brand comes from. I promise not to make it too academic, but I think it's really, really valuable. Uh, I get super excited about this stuff, but you know that about me. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Thanks again to recruitmentmarketing.com for sponsoring the whole thing. Take a look at recruitmentmarketing.com. Sign up, log in, subscribe, do the whole bit. I'm doing a couple of ask me anythings with them. So if you missed the one in April 11, which I think, I can't tell, this may or may not come in, come out before or after that, I'm doing four total, I think. Yes. So we'll get a chance to see one of them, I'm hoping. So take a look at that. I will talk to you later next week. Have a great week. Bye. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.